The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Mr. Brian Shannon, who I'm sure many of you have seen do the rounds over the last several years. Has a phenomenal book uh, that he published quite a few years ago, but I think certainly is very relevant today. Brian, for those who are not familiar with your background, introduce yourself. How did you get interested in markets? What's your skill set? And what are you doing currently? Sure, Michael. Thank you for having me on. And, uh, you know, I need to remind people that you're a two-time CMT Dow Award winner as well, which is quite a prestigious accomplishment. I'm sure I've said it to you before, but congratulations on that original work that has been recognized by your peers. Um, I have been involved in the business. You know, my first trade was actually back in the late 70s. I'm 55 years old, and uh, I was a young child hanging out with my dad watching Wall Street Week in the, like I said, the late 70s. They, there was a a stock called Low Jack, which was probably my first real trade, and that was when I was about 13 or 14 years old. I had put up $500 of my money, and my dad gave me some leverage, basically. We bought $5,000 worth of the stock. It doubled in a short period of time, and I have had the needle in my arm ever since then. I started out really not knowing what I wanted to do other than that I wanted to be a, you know a trader and I thought that's what a broker was you know in my mid teens when I wasn't such a serious student in that but so out of college I I did become a retail stockbroker in 1991 started at Lehman Brothers bounced around to a few firms and then moved to Denver in 93 I think and um I've been involved in various aspects of of trading I had a small hedge fund for a while, headed up a proprietary trading group, wrote that book that you mentioned in 2008, and just have completed a book about the anchored volume weighted average price that uh, will be available mid-January. So I trade each and every day. That's my passion is trading. I am a price-based trader. I try to tune out the news as much as possible. I am aware of events and headlines that have the potential to move the, the market. But for me, I'm not very good at tuning out my emotions historically. And you know, every time I would, in the past, trade based off of news, I would end up chasing things and losing money. And I, you know, I learned the way everyone learns, which is the hard way by losing money and figuring out what 
my strengths in the market are. My strengths are, you know, super accurate entries. And then, you know, my weakness, I would say, is probably not holding my winners long enough. But that's also turned out to be a strength, I think, because I've never become complacent with any stock that I've been in. I, you know, someone told me once, never love something that won't love you back. And that's absolutely 100% true with stocks. So, so I, I'm a I'm a swing trader primarily. Ideally, that means I'm holding a stock two to three weeks. However, with this market, it generally means you know my my longest holding times are you know three to seven days. It's just you know a function of what the market tells us, rather than trying to impose my belief and thinking that I should hold for three weeks because that's what I want to do. It's not up to me. It's about the, you know, listening to the market. So I'll, I'll stop there, Michael. So, so I got to say, I've been to Colorado a number of times. I'm always amazed at um, how young everybody looks. People that are in their forties and fifties look way younger, like they're in their thirties, I think partially because of the altitude, but the, uh, I, I want to, I want you to talk through how your own risk tolerance has, changed or maybe evolved since the 70s, right? Because, you know, traditional finance would argue correctly so. The older you get, the more conservative you end up being. The more you have kids, the more like, the less likely you are to take risk. How has just general aging impacted your way of trading, if at all? Great question. My method of trading has evolved like every everyone's method. You know, as we become more experienced, we learn more about ourselves and how we interact in the market, what our weaknesses are, and try to avoid those. I've, you know, to my luck, I think, I've always been super risk averse. And that's why I've been able to be involved in the markets professionally as long as I have. I've never been the type of a person to do the YOLO trade and really swing for the fences. I'm more of a steady base hitter, first and second base. Once in a while, I get something that makes a big run and I'll hold a final piece of it. But again, I think that that was a born, you know, whether it was nature or nurture, my dad was pretty conservative. So I think I got a lot of that from him. But I've never been a huge risk taker. The thing that's really changed over the years, and I just wrote about this in my book, is that the, as we get older, the, the need for immediate gratification diminishes. And in that, I mean, I'm much more willing, and it's been a tremendous asset this year, is to just say, I don't know, I'm not going to do anything here right now. Whereas I can think back 10, 15 years ago, I would trade anything that moves. So it, it's more about being more patient and selective with the trades than than anything else. And that's really helped avoiding more losers really than anything. I look at it and on balance, I'm sure I've, there's a lot of good trades I've let go because of my discipline as well. But when I look at how much I might have made on those trades where I broke my rules versus what I would have lost if I broke my rules, I'm a hundred percent certain I would be way behind where I was today. So discipline always is, you know, something that I take hundred percent seriously. That I have to cut losses immediately. That that I, I just I, I change my personality, my demeanor, my physical being changes when I'm down in a stock, and I I I feel like a complete fool. I start beating myself up. My self esteem goes to nothing. So it's it's fighting those emotions and 
not wanting to have those emotions that says, you know what, I can see where this is going. If I don't cut this now, just because everyone on Twitter is talking about this stock or some guy is saying something, I don't care. It's I'm not going to chase gold when everyone said it was bullish yesterday. It's right at the 200 day moving average. I'm going to look at it and go, what are these people thinking? I don't see it. I I, I don't need to be part of the crowd and, and another personality flaw slash strength of mine is I kind of have an FU attitude. I always have. I, you know, grew up in the Boston area and there's a lot of attitude there. And I think, <laughs> I think that's where I picked that up. And you can hear it with some of the other East Coast people. Yeah. Anybody that followed me uh, probably can tell that I have a similar <laughs> attitude on a lot of these things. But but I want to hit on something. You said risk averse. And, you know, you, you often hear that among traders, right, that uh, they tend to try to manage risk, at least those that are good at it from a longer term perspective. I've used that line many times to kill it in the stock market, you have to not get killed. Now, mm-hmm. in in uh, the funny thing about this year, it's not really funny. It's been painful. I reference that because one can be risk averse, but that doesn't mean they're not going to suffer a big decline periodically. So when you are risk averse and you're disciplined and yet you still go through a decline, how do you yourself retrospectively look at those periods? Do you learn from those periods or do you say to yourself, you know what, this is what comes with the game? It's always a learning opportunity. I mean, it doesn't feel like it when when you're in the middle of it. And, you know, we can tell ourselves all these happy platitudes that this will make me stronger and all that sort of thing. But the truth is, when you're going through it, your self-esteem goes to, to nothing. You start doubting what your what your approach is. For me, though, Michael, I think it comes down to my a key for me is that I know what my time frame is, that I'm not looking to make a stand and say, I believe this is a good company. Eventually, the market will realize how smart I am. Instead, I approach it as I don't know shit. The market is right now rewarding me. I know I'm not that smart. I've got to protect what the market's giving me so far. And if I allow a winner to turn into a loser, then I, you know, not every, not up 10 cents, but if a stock moves three or 4% and I allow that to turn into a loser, then I feel like I'm the loser. And I just don't let that happen. I'm really, you know, people think, well, shorter term traders, isn't that risky? And I, I would say it's the exact opposite is that you get to control your risk in the moment that we have much, much more accurate clarity of market trends in the near term, it's it's very similar to forecasting the weather. Any weatherman can tell you which day of the week it's going to rain this week, but you know a year out, they're just guessing. They're going off historical models and seasonal tendencies, and we have all those studies in the market about seasonal t- tendencies as well. And they're good to be aware of, but the the thing that I always make sure to make my decisions on our price action. And and if I'm looking at a seasonal tendency going, what's wrong with this market? When's it going to get back into gear the way it's supposed to? Well, the market often doesn't do what it's quote unquote supposed to. So again, all lessons I've learned the hard way and I've learned them by repeating them over and over again, more times than anyone should. The, in, other, in other words, you some, sometimes, and it hasn't happened in a while, I'll look at my account and go, who the hell was trading this account today? That's not the person that has been building this experience up and gotten to this level over the last 30 plus years. 
it's just you know but but we're human and sometimes we break down and and when that happens as soon as i recognize it i will just i will puke the position and say enough i i can't allow myself i can't bullshit myself into thinking that i'm going to continue with this and the market is going to realize how smart i am i have truly given in to the market is my master that i don't I can't control anything other than my position size, the time that I get involved in, and the time that I allow to hold. We have the theoretical risk, which is our stop. And then we have unknown risk, which might be, hey, the market was looking good yesterday, so I'm going to hold my longs. And then we have employment numbers come out. So that's why I have to be aware of news catalyst that might change the perception of the market and then determine, well, is there, with me being a trader, is my advantage to continue to hold this market that was up three, four percent in the matter of, you know, 12 trading hours in front of a big catalyst? What's the risk reward here? And then instead decide to trim. And what would have been the best case scenario? Maybe we gap up another you know percent or so. But where is the where has it come from? Where does it have the potential to go? Is the risk worth the reward? Those are all things I continually ask myself. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now... Back to our discussion. By the way, I, I love that point because I've used that analogy many times on the road presenting at CFA chapters, this idea that when you look at old domains that deal with the business of forecasting, the domain that is the most accurate, or the profession rather, is weathermen, exactly like you said. And there's a caveat to that, right? So they are the most accurate despite the vilification around whether the weather is right or wrong around being accurate in their field. But the caveat there is only three days out in a 10 day forecast. Right. Yeah. So, right. So, which I think is really interesting as a, as a construct, right? Because I'm with you. I've, I've always been of the mindset that you can identify the conditions in the short, maybe intermediate term that favor an outcome and the probabilities that come from that. Nobody knows what the long run looks like. Right. I mean, so, so there's an assumption implicit in a lot of traders and investors that the market would bail them out because stocks will go up for the long run. But we actually don't know if that's going to be true, except with hindsight. Yeah. I, I mean, everything is potential and potential is good. We want to be aware of what that potential can be. But then we need truth. We need price to confirm it or refute it. And I don't want to argue with with the market. The market is. You know, the the market knows more than I do. And there's no room for ego in the market. I've learned that the hard way. I've I've been on the other end of it. I've had great runs in the market where I just felt like I could do no wrong. And as soon as you start to feel that way, the market's there to slap you back and say, well, buddy, you, you don't know shit. Yeah. You know, I will say just from our side, this is, I've said this before, so I'm sure people are going to roll their eyes, but, you know, this whole Twitter persona with the exquisite atrocious, if you understand this, is because it's me poking fun at ego. 
the idea that somebody oh, has yeah. information, yeah, yeah. right? And it's funny because it's like if, if you don't get the joke, you are the joke, right? It's kind of the the way that I view yeah. it. People kind of think I'm um egotistical when I say that. But let's continue with this time. It's, it's Michael. It's if you don't know who Patsy is at the poker table, right. it's you, yeah, right? right? Yeah, exactly right. But but let's keep going with the time frame points. I think this is this is also where I think it fits what you can argue gets toxic. You can hold. You can be both bullish and bearish at the same time, right? It it entirely depends on what time frame with which you're expressing those views, and Always, that requires right, right, and that requires a certain degree of of cognitive effort because it's a it's cognitive dissonance, right? You're holding two conflicting opinions at the same time and trying to act on that. How do you uh, deal with having different viewpoints? Because at some point, if you're talking about being bullish short term but bearish intermediate term. There's got to be a flip in time that makes the intermediate short term when you start changing all the things that maybe were working. For me, it's about trend alignment. And the way I look at it is, you know, through stage analysis. Your dad was a big proponent of, of that and building on the work of Wyckoff and Weinstein and, and all those names in the past that I look at a stock and, and look at the primary trend, let's say, on a daily time frame. And I'll say, OK, it's in a primary uptrend. Well, that means I don't want to short it. I don't care if it just rallied from 80 to 100 and it might pull back to 90. I'm not interested in shorting it from 100 down to 90 because news and surprises follow the trend. So if I'm in a short position and news comes out, it's likely going to mess me up. So instead, I look at that stock, I'll look to a stock in a downtrend and say, the stock just dropped from 100 to 90 or you know, 100 to 80. Now, if it bounces up to 90, I'm going to start to anticipate trend alignment. So what is? So let me go back. I'm sorry, I confused long and short there. But if the stock's in a long-term uptrend, I'll look at it and say, okay, a normal uptrend isn't just going to go straight up. There's pullbacks. There's corrections, either pullback price-wise or sideways through time, where we just need to digest those gains a little bit. And then when they do that sideways correction through time or pullback in price, it's my job to study that. So when the long-term trend is up and the short-term trend is down, I avoid it. When the short-term trend starts to turn sideways, a stage one accumulation on a shorter-term time frame, that's where I start to anticipate. I start to build my plan and say, okay, if it breaks above this level, we'll have a short-term higher high, which is in alignment with the longer-term trend. So I'm not buying the higher high on the big time frame, but the short-term time frame. So when we, so I, I'll avoid the pullback, anticipate during stage one, participate at the very beginning of stage two. And that can be lonely because a lot of times people are like, well, what about the volume? Well, the volume follows the trend. It doesn't, it doesn't lead it. Volume tends to peak at the short-term tops and lows so and diminish on the pullback. So if it was a low-volume pullback, it came in, let's say, to a key anchored VWAP or a rising 20-day moving average. It starts to turn sideways in there for three or four days. I don't buy at that level, but I look to the shorter-term time frame and say, is there evidence here? And then I wait for price confirmation that the short-term time frame is now made that higher high. That's where I participate. And then I set my stop below the most recent relevant higher low on the time frame I'm engaged. That could be a one minute chart as it was the day after the two day on Tuesday uh, with the with the Fed comments. 
or it might be when with the daily time frame is higher and then I plan my trade on the 15 minute time frame. you know, it's pulled back three days, gone sideways for a day or two. It makes that first little higher high. I'll engage there. And uh, it's just the opposite on the downtrend. Look for a stage four decline stock when it's in stage two on the intermediate term, meaning a bounce in the downtrend. I'll avoid it. I'm not going to try to buy it. As it distributes and turns sideways, I'm going to start to anticipate that it's going to turn back lower again and then, you know, build my plan, set my alerts, know where my will be, market disagrees and that sort of thing. And then as it just enters that stage four with the lower low, that's where I participate and set my stop. It's good for a question. Again, if anybody wants to come up, follow me, check your DMs and I'll prompt you. Thanks for the kind words, Eric. The... You know, for me, it's again, I've made every mistake and it's they've cost me money. So, you know, I've learned that the market just doesn't care about my opinion. So I am always going to be submissive to the market. If the market disagrees with what I say, I just don't care. I know my opinion doesn't care. I might as well be arguing with my wife about something. It's just <laughs> I'm not right. The market is the boss. So I, you know, it's just come through years and years of getting beat over the head and finally learning and respecting the market's message saying, no, you're wrong. And I just have to say, okay, do I want to lose this money that I work hard for and be a dumbass and be stubborn? Uh, do I want to be like a teenage kid who thinks they know everything or do I want to preserve my assets, wait for something that appears to be easier to set up and limit my loss and, and, and just repeat the process. It's about consistency of process. But I think this whole point about consistency of process is critical because, again, it doesn't mean consistency of returns. I mean, you know, I've made this point before. When you look at the, sort of the history of really great traders, a lot of them can have periods where they are desync, they're losing, and then suddenly they get a, a fat pitch and almost all their returns come from kind of a almost like a lumpy return series in a year like this year brian take us take us through kind of the way you've managed your own trades i mean on the one hand you can argue it's been easy if you've been primarily short on the other hand there have been a lot of whipsaws i'd argue false signals and very strange intermarket dynamics yeah you know i don't really like trading short i mean i've i've had more shorts this year than i have the last few years because that's what the market has presented me but the odd thing is that I have made more money on the long side this year than the short side. And it's not by buying, you know, the bounces and downtrends, but there's there there have been stocks that are moving higher. The the thing is my returns aren't on those stocks aren't what they would be in a bull market because the primary, you know, backdrop is that we're in a bearish environment. So my A-list setup long is not going to get the same amount of risk allocated to it because the the risk of the market is too great. They say a rising tide lifts all boats and you know outgoing tide reveals who's uh who's swimming naked, right? And I don't want to be swimming naked, but I I want to make sure that I at least I have underwear on underneath my shorts. So as the market does go out, I'm somewhat protected. So I'm not sure I'm answering the question right there, Michael. Well, okay, so let, let's talk about this. You're talking about it, so that's interesting, right? So if you made more money, you know, certainly going long this year, and how do you even identify those setups or those tickers? Is it a function of the industry and the sector? I mean, you know, utilities, for example, energy, for example, right? That's clearly got a, 
a relative headwind and certainly absolute when it comes to energy. But is it more because of the the group movement or was it something that was really idiosyncratic about those trades? Yeah, that's, that's a really important difference there. And I kind of take the opposite view of what most people do in that I don't look at the market first, the sector second, and then the components. For me, it's all about 100% bottom up. On my screen, I have a weekly chart, a daily, a 65-minute, 30-minute, 10-minute, and 2-minute. And it sounds like a lot, but it's, again, I've been doing this since 1991 full-time. So I can look at a list of 500 stocks in an hour and a half, get them down to 50, 60 stocks, and say, there's something interesting going on here. And then I'll look at that list and say, hey, you know, there's three SaaS stocks in there. There's four energy names. So I'll start to see the components showing strength before. And then I'll, let's say, go look at the XLE. Uh, and the XLE hasn't really moved yet. So the strongest stocks are going to lead the XLE. And by the time the XLE has broken out, you know, the leaders will have already moved 10, 15%. And the group starts getting dragged higher by those leaders. So to me, it's it's bottoms up, 100% stop, stock picking. I don't need to have the group necessarily be strong. Although if I look at a stock and I say, hey, there's something weird about this semiconductor stock that's been strong. Now, they've been strong, obviously, over the last month, but for the year, they have not. Let's say three months ago, I saw a semiconductor stock percolating. I might look and go, this is weird. Look at the semiconductors. They're all acting like garbage, but this one is looking like a low-risk breakout here. I'll still take a position because I've learned the hard way that you know I've, I've identified a stock that looks great on a chart, and I convinced myself not to get involved because of the sector conditions or the overall market conditions. Whereas there's, for whatever reason, there's something unusual about this company that a large participant or group of participants have the confidence to bid it up in light of uh, weakness in the overall sector in the market, it tells me that, hey, there's something special here. Although I say it's special, I would only risk maybe a half of a risk unit than if I had the confidence that the that the group looked like it was ready to get going. So short answer is it's always about individual stock first. I consider the sector, but it doesn't weigh a lot. I consider the market. It doesn't weigh a lot. Only in position size does it really matter. Let's go to a question again. I see there's a bunch of people that want to come up. And, and I want to add to that real quick, Brian. I mean, I, I think this yeah. is an important point because the it is true when you look at co-movements and you know, correlations that the proliferation of ETFs and just in general more passive basket trading has resulted in in less variability, you can argue, you know, within sectors and across sectors. So in other words, you, Michael, you're saying that it's kind of diminished the, what am I trying to say, the the, the larger movers that they've kind of all kind of gravitated towards the middle? Right. Yeah. I think that's definitely true that people now look at them more as baskets than individual ones, which is what, when that one semiconductor, using the prior example, that one semiconductor stock exhibits strength when the rest of them are clustered together, all kind of doing the same thing, it makes it a little bit more special because it really stands out and says there's something going on here. Somebody seems to want to own this for whatever reason, they are not selling it the way they are the other ones. But the question is that, you know, when we see a bear market like this, I I guess I should say I do counter trend trade 
but in the indexes. And so we're in a primary downtrend. Declining 200-day moving average still tells me overall, I have to look at this market with an eye of suspicion in the SPY. But I put out a chart earlier today. We've had three rallies this year of, well, we had a 12.7%, nine, 9.7, 19.3, and a 17.8. There's clearly opportunities, you know, in the long side there, but I don't base it on the daily chart. So I'll trade bounces in the sectors. And then to, when I do that, my long term time frame kind of goes down to a 30 minute time frame. My short term is then a 10 minute and my fine tuning is on a one and two minute time frame. So as far as the question that you're asking me, have I noticed the change? I don't think that I really have because I've always been more individually stock focused. I haven't been the the top down type of guy, but I know that when the markets are in downtrends, Shorts are very difficult because we get these nasty gaps. We get, but for the overall ETFs, I prefer to trade those because we can uh, dampen some of the individual stock action on the downside. So I'd rather short the SMH than short Nvidia, for instance, because you lose that individual stock component where an analyst might upgrade it or you know someone just decides to cover their short and you get this stupid rally so i hope hope that answered the question let me reset the room for the remaining minutes here everybody please make sure you follow brian shannon if you're curious to check out his book it's on amazon and shared at the nest technical analysis using multiple time frames and we'll talk about the new book uh coming up shortly let's go for a question Okay. Well, thanks for the question. One, and I think we have a more recent example with a with someone with a price target of fifteen hundred on Zoom, and the you know. So I I just don't get locked into a belief about a stock. It's really not a question that I think I'm qualified to answer because I have haven't for years thought that I need to know that I know something. I'm convinced about what a stock will do because. You know, I've I've said often, if I had a nickel for every time the market or an individual stock surprised me, that I would have never had to trade and I would have be retired on my own island. The market just has that ability to just humiliate you if you get locked into a belief and then allow yourself to get stuck in the position and then you you can't unwind it with Pershing and Variant or this other fund with Zoom. I just it's it's a position I refuse myself to ever get into again. Doesn't mean I haven't done it. Like I said, I've learned every single lesson the hard way. So yeah, it's just not part of what I do, I don't think. Yeah. And you know, so position sizing number one is that we have what we think we know the risk is with a stop loss. But if I buy the stock at $33 a share and I, you know, I've set my stop at $31.85 and I didn't realize that earnings came out and the stock opens at 22. Well, my theoretical risk of a dollar, whatever it was, that was just theory. In real life, you know, the risk was something I didn't know. The FBI raided their headquarters, whatever happened that had that stock gap down. I will generally, I've tried to be cute and wiggle my way out of them. And my thing is now I give it 
I, I let the low of the first five minutes become my stop. So I won't throw the stock away on the open, but if it violates the stock for the first five minutes, I'm just out. That's it. I, I don't want to prolong the losses. I don't want to say everybody else is wrong and they're missing the point of this stock because people with more money are betting with more shares and they're driving the trends. I look at it and say, it's going to hurt now, but I'd rather have it hurt now, move on, go back to the what I do process and not have to deal with this thing anymore. Release the mental capital of trying to continue to fight it as well. Speaking about just the idea of being a, a short-term trader, I just want to take a step back for a moment. It seems to me like the uh, the biggest short-term trader is the Federal Reserve uh, at this point in the way that they're framing things. I, I, look, I get it, right? The, the classic technical analysis argument is going to be it's all reflected in price. But do you factor in anything when it comes to short-term trades, when it comes to Federal Reserve policy or what's being said at any moment in time, or you just totally uh, ignore it? The only thing that I really use the news for Michael is to be aware of, you know, so I, I, I don't read a lot of news. That's that might sound ignorant, but you know, it's, it's what's helped me stay sane and, and not lose all my money. I'm interested in the headlines, not some reporter's opinion. So I'm interested in, Hey, everyone's buzzing about this CPI report. Everyone's buzzing about this speech from, from Powell six months ago, a speech from Powell or maybe let's say 12, 18 months ago, just home on. Powell spoke today. They're keeping monetary policy the same. Nobody cares. It doesn't matter. But now, you know, it was on everyone's radar. So it, it meant that I have to check my risk ahead of this event because it might lead to an outsized move in either direction. So I want to be aware of the potential catalyst and check my risk in front of that to say, hey, do I have some trades that have run 8% the last three days and there's a catalyst in the morning? Well, why don't I cash in three quarters of that and look at the overall environment? We're down 15% year to date, but we've had rallies of 9% or more four times and we've had declines of 10% or more four or five times as well. It's always about, is there a potential catalyst and if so, how do I, you know, minimize my risk ahead of that? Let's go to our question. I've had. It's difficult to be a hobbyist trader and compete against, you know, the, the, not me, but the smartest. I'm competing against the smartest minds on the planet. I've figured out how to move in between what they do. So I'm kind of, I think, Short-term traders have to be kind of sneaky, and and that's the way it is. Is I'm sneaking in front of their move, and I'm sneaking out before the shit hits the fan, and I'm doing. You know, I anticipate a lot what could happen. I don't try to predict. Hey, the market's going to go here. That's my price target. As I, it looks like it could get moving, but I need to manage my risk first and foremost. So I think hobbyist trading is very difficult and the odds are hugely stacked against you. As I said, I've been doing this pretty much full time since 1991. You know, I I had a I, I was a broker for a little while in there and but I've been trading almost every single day and it it's still I'm still odd at how difficult it is. And I try to use my experience to help other people avoid things that you know they get locked into a belief about you know, I don't know what these companies are that you think are good for 10 years. And I, I, I'm not looking to get into the discussion necessarily, but 
to believe I, when the markets were first going down, I remember one person in particular really getting kind of nasty with me about what a great company PayPal was and that his models told him this and that. And, you know, this was when the stock was 230, 240, and that I was a fool for not getting involved. And it, the stock just continues to, to, to be terrible. And this poor guy had most of his account, I think, in it. And here he's down 60, 70%. I, I just, I can't get into an investor's mentality of, hey, it'll eventually work itself out. Maybe I have trust issues with the market. I've, I've traded my opinions before and I've learned the hard way. And I, this is a the theme here. I've learned the hard way that my opinions don't matter. If I can, understand the collective opinions of the market and the chart is the most objective way to to recognize that then i want to position myself with the crowd not try to be smarter than the crowd and get out while the getting's still good and if i leave money on the table that's fine but it's really just a it's a balancing act it's it's you're always walking the tightrope and you've got to the more experience you have, the easier it becomes. But I said earlier, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll look at my account and go, who the hell was trading that account today? That wasn't me. Like, what, what, who is this alter ego? Uh, even, you know, this this long into full-time trading, it's uh, it can still really just uh, annoy the hell out of you. But I will say real quick at this point about when, <laughs> if you said line before, right? Well, you know you're right when the counter argument is an insult. It is, it's like, this. Is, a lot of things what I find is like, middle school uh, infighting among kids it's you know i'm right about my trade and my thesis no i'm right about my trade and my thesis it's like everyone has the same problem nobody knows what tomorrow brings we're all trying to right. work off those probabilities so i i just i always find it odd that people take it almost personal if if you have a different outcome because you have a different process and even if, if you have the same process you can still have a different outcome depending upon error in in the process we'll be back after a quick break Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Absolutely, Michael. And I think you just hit the nail on the head is it's about understanding your process, your time frame. And this sounds closed mind. I've said this before. And, you know, people always say, well, I want to hear the counter trend argument. I want to, you know, get all the opinions and I want people to poke holes in my thesis for this trade. I don't. I, I trust my analysis. I trust my process. I trust my discipline that I don't need someone to sow doubt in my mind about this trade. I'm not there. I don't want to discuss why, hey, you're stupid if you buy that stock. If I buy the stock and it doesn't go up, guess what? I'm going to get stopped out with a small loss. I don't need to hear your infighting and your ego talking to me about how smart you think you are. And so there's two great things. On Twitter, there's a mute button and there's a block button. And 
sometimes I'll mute people if they become disrespectful or try to start fighting. It's a quick block. There's just no need for that type of negativity to, if you want to say, Hey, well, I would put my stop here. Fine. That's great. You know, do what's right for you. And Hey, maybe you're right. I'll, I'll adjust my stop. Thank you. But for people who go on to Twitter and you just want to argue, get a life. Yeah, you know, so I don't pay a whole lot of attention to volume in the traditional sense of that. If I see that there's big volume and the stock doesn't do anything, I go, well, there was a buyer, there was a seller. Some The buyer thinks they know something. The seller thinks they know something. The chart is telling me nothing's going on here, so it's just noise. To me, it's more about the volume since the event. So if I can anchor to the moment the Fed, you know, Powell started speaking, the beginning of the month, the beginning of the week, the beginning of the year from an earnings report. That's what I want to know is what's the crowd say with 100% certainty, who's in control from that point, from that catalyst that caused a shock to supply and demand in the market. That's my interest. Yeah. And I will say, I, I, I personally don't believe in volume confirming anything. Maybe back in the day, there were some some predictive power on that, but I've I've done tons of back testing. I don't see any link myself really between volume and price action. And you know if, if it confirms or doesn't confirm, because especially now there's so many ways that you can get volume without trading, right? Through derivatives and and other kind of links yeah. uh, things, right? Just kind of more of a more of a side note. Totally do, and 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 maybe I didn't make my point clear. Uh, is that that's just not the way my brain thinks about stocks and investing. I don't look at as a stock and a company and say that's one I want to own for the next twenty years. I have never thought that about any stock ever. And even if I let's say I have thought, hey, this is one I could see buying and holding it for the next three years. Well, three days later, I got stopped. I'll get stopped out and go, well, the market, <laughs> so much for that three years. It's just to me, the market is the master. And I, I, I'm not the right guy to ask about that. And I, I'm not trying to dodge your question. It's just, it's not my psyche at all. I, I am truly a trader. I also think it's, you know, the, the, the thing with buy and hold, as we know, is that very few actually do hold. I mean, it's, it's, if you're going to do buy and hold, it has to really be buy and not look at, right? Because there's a temptation. Right to to not hold the moment that there is a drawdown. That's often the reason why buy and hold fails, and it's also the reason why it tends to work, which is kind of the the irony of it. Let's go to a question about VWAP and anchor VWAP. Agree. To me, it's about leveraging time. And again, is when the markets go down, and I'm telling myself that I'm in it for the long term. I just feel stupid. I feel like I'm bullshitting right. myself because I see price declining and everything that I know through my full-time experience over the last 30 years has told me, get out of this thing. So I have to, again, stay true to my process, stay true to my time frame, And that's really, you know, Michael asked me, what, what should we talk about? do I have a couple of things I said time frame and process are really something that people get on Twitter and they they point out an opinion about a company or a stock and they they make no reference to time frame they say I like this stock okay where's your stock or, or what do you or waiting also I mean that's the other thing too it's like all right so if you like what one percent two percent hundred percent <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. But most important, I think, is, okay, where's your stop? What's your time frame? What's your stop? If you're an investor and you have a five-year horizon, you know, I 
I, I'm just going to mute you because I don't want to hear it. I, it's just, it's noise to me. It's no disrespect, but I just can't hear that. It disrupts my flow. It's, it's like if, if an NBA player could shut that guy up in the front row, he would do it. And once in a while they jump in the stands and punch him in the face like they deserve. It's easier for us. We can just press the mute button and never hear from them again. Yeah, no, <laughs> I love that analogy. Um, all right. So maybe for the remaining few minutes, again, everybody here, please make sure you follow Brian Shannon. Talk a little bit about the the book that's coming out. Why did you decide to do a second book? What's the sort of broad concept there? And take us through the journey of what writing a book is like, because it's very easy for somebody to just buy it and think that it's it's uh, it was destined to come out. But it takes a lot of work, right, to put something like that out. Oh, my God, does it ever. Man, I you know, I've questioned myself so many times about this. There's a lot of. There's a lot of, you know, quotes about writing a book, like first it's your lover, then it's your mistress, then it's your ex and you hate it. And you, you so for me, I've been talking about the anchored VWAP for, I don't know, I started using it at about 03, I think, when I found it on Realtek. And it wasn't the anchored VWAP then, but, you know, it, it was always something that found that that provided value to my analysis. I couldn't quantify it. I couldn't really find much to read about it. So I did a lot of experimentation and I've been tweeting about it forever. And people, it seems like people have really grasped on grasped a hold of it the last few years. In particular, in 2015, TC2000 wanted me to use their software. And they, I said, if you can make it so I can do a point-and-click anchored volume-weighted average price, I will use your software instead of this other one. A couple months later, they had it. That sold me on them. We've had about 10, 15 other companies bring out anchored VWAPs. And now there's, you know, there people recognize it for what it is, but people don't understand it. So I've decided, I decided, well, I was going to write a paper about it. I actually submitted one for the Dow award and didn't win Michael. So I, uh, again, was, that, I was, was, that, was that in 2014 or 2016? Cause then we were competing. If that was the case. No, it was it was four years ago, I think. And I've never done anything with that paper. It, it kind of sat on my drive and it's actually I understand why it didn't. Anyways, I'm, I'm not I'm not complaining about that. I'm just saying that it's all these things have been percolating. And I met Jay Woods about six years ago at a CMT symposium. And he you know, is an ex floor governor and, and all that. I think a lot of people are familiar with him. And I started talking about the, the VWAP and, and, you know, the two day VWAP. And he's like, wow, no one really talks about this stuff, Brian. You should, you know, you should talk more about it. And I was like, well, I do on Twitter. But so I decided then this was maybe five years ago. I said to him, you know, I, I went home, I thought about it more and I said, hey, Jay, guess what? I'm going to write a book about this. <laughs> that was five years ago. So I sat down and I wrote an outline and then I let the outline sit for six months. And I said, hey, I should get back to that project. And then I sat down for a good solid month and I would write, you know, a few pages. I would sit down, I would look at emails, I'd get distracted on the Internet, leave it alone for six months and come back. Anyways, it's just, I, I am not a natural writer. To me, it's a lot of work. And to to get it to a final product is just a crazy amount of editing. And the work that goes into them is nuts. I'm not complaining by any means. I'm, I'm letting people know that, you know, to answer your question, yeah, it's a ton of work. It's finally... And, that, and, that, by, the way, and that, by the way, that people should respect that. I mean, it's this is the thing that also I think is what's challenging. So I was alluding to this idea that, People just see the out, output, but they don't realize how much goes into the output. 
Uh, whether you like somebody's way of thinking about things, don't attack their their body of work because there's a lot of time spent on it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, research, testing, you know, every day what I have done for the last five, six years, it's always in my mind. Hey, how do I, you know, formulate this into my book? And that might sound like, hey, I'm super slow motion type guy, which is probably true when it comes to getting my words on the paper. I look at someone like Josh Brown, you know, that guy can just you give him a thought, he'll sit down and, you know, half hour later, he'll have three pages of just this incredible work. Me, I'll, I'll, you know, have to run it through spell check, a grammar thing, and I've still my grammar. I, I'm, anyway, the point is, it, it comes out in January. It's about the anchored VWAP. There's three sections to it. The first is kind of background, introduction, what it is, why it's important, psychology of it. There's a lot of psychology in the book. The second section is really the meat. It's where I have, I think, eight specific strategies about, you know, IPOs news events, the anchored VWAP pinch, the handoff, a couple other things in there. And then I have a couple of appendixes that are, you know, kind of just more introductory because it is kind of an advanced subject matter. And some people who pick it up might be in over their head. So I've kind of wrote a couple of appendixes about, you know, stage analysis and trend alignment to get them up to speed. So it went to the printer yesterday. Congrats. I mean, that's, and what's, what's the expected uh, release date? Late January. I think we should uh, we should definitely have you on again once that's published. Uh, so, no, that's well, I appreciate that's that. Yeah, Thank no, no, you. Brian, Brian any, any final thoughts here for the audience as we wrap up as far as maybe the one, you know, I hate to be kind of cliche with this, but kind of one piece of advice that you'd give to, to traders, whether they're new or experienced, that people should always keep in the back of their mind. Know your time frame. Really, that's it. You know, know your time frame. Don't let... Uh, you know, don't let your long-term thought of a stock of a company allow you to bullshit yourself into holding a loser. Manage risk for your time frame. Be absolutely vigilant about managing risk. Well said. Thank you, everybody, for joining. And Brian, thank you for uh, spending the hour here with us. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.